1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, Subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 10 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, April the 7th. First, I'll be talking to Telstra's cybersecurity expert, Darren Pawley, on how Australians can protect themselves from cybercrime. And I'll be talking to ComSec economist Craig James about what to expect in the market next week. But now, let's talk to Darren Pawley. Darren, there's been a whole lot of issues with cyber attacks in Australia and uh, your research shows that
2: there's huge losses coming to Australians out of it. Is that right? Yeah. So if we look at it, there's new ScamWatch data out today for the month of February, but January was uh, Australians lost $53 million, which is an almost inconceivable amount of money, which was up $10 on the year before and then up again. So it's up, 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 up every, every year. And February's clocked forty-three million dollars, so it's 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 absolutely huge. There was almost thirty thousand reports, and all of these numbers are always subject to underreporting. People tend not to report cybercrime losses and things like that. So yeah, it's it's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, investment scams are sort of top of that rank, top of the list in terms of the most common ways that people are losing money. And, and this is not only with attacks from
1: uh, phishing emails and stuff like that, but that's also with phone calls as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So so the, the numbers cover a lot of different territory. So romance scams, uh, you know, dating scams are huge. They're really, really complex and very uh, emotional and all this kind of stuff. So they're getting more and more prolific and uh, we're losing more and more money. At least we're reporting more and more money lost to that. In fact, that's actually overtaken phishing as a form. So most of us are, if I'd probably guess that most of us know or encounter cybersecurity scams through phishing, you know, those text messages and phone calls and emails that you get forever. So they're really common, but investment scams and romance scams, just absolutely huge.
1: Now, uh, your research shows that you find most of admit they
2: should pay better attention. Yes, yeah. So cybersecurity is one of those things. I've been working in the industry for a while now, and it's quite complex. Like if, if I was to sort of compare uh, cybersecurity sort of driving, you know, right now your cars don't even need a key anymore, right? Touch, start, whatever, and off you go. You don't need to know how the engine works, anything like that. You know, if cybersecurity was driving cars, you'd be crank starting the engine, right? Like this is this is a complex beast. So I think people are, are aware, they have a, a good sense of awareness I think there was a, a number in there, 82%. So basically most Australians think they can detect a, a, a scam, right? So we know what kind of scams tend to look like, but there's so many different types. And if you take phishing, for example, most people look for sort of typos and things. We can talk about that in a little while, but um, there's no really a reason that, that a phishing scam or anything like that needs to have typos in it. Everyone could put together a good sentence. Everyone's got a spell checker. so it's those things that catch us out i think that where we lose our money and then defending against those things is kind of complex it's conflicting information and different tools and things you can use
1: well i, I find i find for example what i do is i actually check the email that it's coming on usually <laughs> the email is a dead giveaway
2: yeah so these signs these these are what i would i would let's call them um uh, traditional signs right and they work so there are mainly typos in, uh, like typos are common, a a, a ruse, right? The, the message, the pretext, whatever, the thing they're trying to convince you with is often can seem a bit silly and things like that. And and the email addresses, as you say, links and things. But again, I've seen ones that are, are quite, from a, from a, from a cybercrime point of view, quite impressive. Like they've done a, a very good job at sort of concealing things and hiding things and making them tougher. And of course, if you're on a phone, it makes it kind of harder to look at links and hover over stuff like as you could with the spare mouse so i tend to as as a more high level enduring method of defense recommend that people skeptical of anything that's unexpected so that covers off say if you bank with cba right or use telstra whatever doesn't really matter what the brand is. If you receive a message on whatever, like it could be a phone, a, a phone call, an SMS, a smoke signal, I don't care, carry a pigeon. If that's unexpected, you didn't expect that company to maybe talk like that about this thing to you at this time. You probably have, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a gut instinct mm. about that. Something that goes, oh, that's a bit odd. Why are they asking for this? Uh, you know, take your hands off the keyboard, put the phone down, and slow things down. No business really is gonna drive you that hard to act now, act right now. That's what scammers always rely on. Um, they don't want to wait till tomorrow, you know, anything like that. They want, they want you to act. And so we have this kind of intuition. You know, I spoke to the C- Country Women's Association, right, at this, did this workshop. Youngest, youngest member there was 70, the eldest was 102, I think. And uh, we were talking about the scams and things they'd seen when they were kids. And from the conversations, they come out with these amazing stories. It was unreal. But i really left with this sense that we have a good intuition, mm. a really good sense of something dodgy, you know. And you know, if you're an anthropologist, you could drive that all the way back to you know, as far back in time yeah. as you could. So rely on that. Use that. Well, I mean, I, I've, I, for example, had a
1: call from someone claiming to represent Visa and MasterCard. And I thought, hang on, Visa and MasterCard don't work together hang on, this oh, isn't right. Yeah. And so I instantly knew it was a scam.
2: Perfect. Perfect. That's really good. So there's these these giveaways, right? It can get tricky. So I recently uh, was, so I've, I've worked in Cybersec for somewhere between 15 to 20 years, something like that, right? I, and I know, I know the scams, I know the defences and these things, but about a month ago, roughly, I lost 160 bucks on Facebook marketplace, breaking my own rules, rushing, and not paying attention. Wow. Yeah. So what happened is I was buying something. And I know if you do bank transfers, like BSB, yeah. you, that's like handing money to someone in the street, right? Yeah. It's And so I, I bought things off Facebook using like, you know, trying to work out if the seller's legit or whatever they're not offering postage I hit them up and go do you mind doing this I'll send you postage label whatever and it worked out all the time but I knew that there was a chance that once I hand the money you like I'm just hoping that they send it to me but this one I was being lazy I could have sort of driven 20 minutes but I thought bugger it she offered postage set the thing through and if I slowed things down I would have picked up on a couple of them. right well
1: given that you've been 15 15- years in this what advice would you give people about
2: phishing and phone scams? What advice would you give? Absolutely. So so the number one enduring thing is to sort of trust yourself, back yourself, slow it down, and that's skepticism. It's very easy to pretend to be a brand, right? You could you know, we use these popular brands, that's why they're often targeted. So, that's definitely one thing. On more of a technical front, anyone who runs a business, like a small business, anything like that, 100% this weekend, put on something called multi factor authentication. I wish I had a, a nicer word. It's scarier. It sounds scarier than it is. Put that on your uh, work stuff, so your email accounts for sure, because they get targeted in something called business email compromise. That's a whole sort of com- conversation, but it's about fraudulent invoicing. So, you need to protect. Your email, right? With multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication. It's free. All the all the mandatory stuff you are got to do is free, right? You don't to spend money, but except for your time, right? Obviously, that's, that's, that's money. So apply multi-factor authentication and don't reuse passwords. So if you pick whatever your kid's name or some, whatever it is, you've got some sort of password that you use, don't reuse that across multiple services because if one gets breached, it's dominoes all the way through. And they do, I've, I've tested that theory. It does work. People people testing, like automatically test them against, you know, Facebook and Gmail and things like that. So unique passwords for everything that matters, anything that's got personal information, in there, particularly anything to do with business. And that goes with your website as well. And MFA or multi-factor authentication, MFA, anywhere you see it. So often if you've got a website or something like that or an app, or whatever, MYV, you go to your settings and you should be able to find your way to security. And it's probably there. A lot of the big stuff offer, the big platforms offer. And it's woefully unadopted and it's hugely powerful. Someone can, you know, there's flaws in everything, but someone can basically steal your login, your username and password, and they still won't be able to log in if you've got MFA. So very good. And the other thing is update stuff. So often if it works, so if you've got a bit of hardware that's sort of running or a router or some software and you board it and it still does its job, there's a, a thing called uh, p- patching is a, is a method of maintenance. So let's say I make this uh, phone, all right. I've got a phone in my hand. I produce this, it's got some software and in six months time, someone finds a flaw in the software, where way to hack this thing. I need to fix that for the people who are using it. I'm the manufacturer. And so I developed something called a patch and I push that through to the phone as an update. So you get updates on things. If you put those updates off or if it's so old that it no longer receives updates, there's no fixing of any new security flaws. So that's really important. And businesses, people, uh, you know, criminals, ransomware, all that kind of stuff tends to come through that way. So but consumers and businesses, both the same um, skepticism, MFA and unique passwords. Even from the most sophisticated scams that would protect you. Oh, look, 100%. Look, th- phishing, right? Phishing, you, you mentioned that before. It's it's There's a stat floating around or whatever, and it's something like in the order of 99% of successful breaches, this wouldn't necessarily be true right now. But it's very high. Begin with phishing. So that's everyone from the humble scammer who has a, you know, who's working out of an internet cafe somewhere to an intelligence agency Someone working in intelligence agency with infinite resources. So their mission is to succeed. Money is no object. They all use phishing because it's so powerful. If you can get someone to work against their own interests, to hand something over, that's really powerful stuff. It doesn't mean that the whole castle falls. There's more defences that you have in place, but um, it works really well. So that's where MFA and stuff come in. If MFA is there, you hand over your passwords, you still, you've got something that might just save you bacon. Well, Darren, that's all quite illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot sometimes, yeah. Well,
1: yeah, but uh, it's very important. And thank you so much for your time. Good on you. Thanks very much, Darren. And now let's talk to ComSec economist, Craig James. Well,
3: Craig, what's your view about the market in the week after Easter? Well, it's basically all about jobs. Uh, the labour force figures will come out on Thursday, and uh, the, the Reserve Bank's watching very, very closely, particularly in terms of the, the job market, you know, wages, although we won't get the wages figures coming out on Thursday. We'll only get you know, some jobs and unemployment, but looking very closely at wages, prices, consumer spending, and, and global you know, sort of developments in terms of uh, setting interest rates. so and, and the key reason why people are spending at the moment is because people have got jobs. And if we find out on Thursday that there has been a loss of jobs and the unemployment starts to rise, then you start to think in terms of that, that consumer spending is likely to slow even even further. And then the inflationary pressures are going to ease. So a lot really depends upon these job figures, which are coming out on Thursday. Now, we're looking for, for job growth in the order of 20,000 in the latest month. The participation rate remaining unchanged and the unemployment rate edging up from 3.5% to 3.6%. But whether it's 35 or 3.6%, we're still talking about the tightest job market that we're seeing basically in, in 50 years. And really over the last nine months, we've seen the unemployment rate hold in a very steady range of between 34 to 3.7%. So it will be a, a fascinating read. Uh, looking through all the the components, and and then yes, sort of uh, taking from that, yes, what does that mean for the economy more broadly, particularly in terms of uh, consumer spending? Uh, with the view
1: that the economy will be slowing down, what's the long term projection for jobs?
3: Well, the job market, yes, if we could get the slower economy, so we we have a slowdown in terms of consumer spending, and of course that feeds through to businesses and businesses see this Dollars coming through, and less profits being made, they're likely to ease up in terms of um, job creation as well, and we're, we're likely to see that um, unemployment rate rise over time. Uh, we think that it will probably rise to to the region of four four and a half percent over the next uh, next twelve months. Still, historically very very low. But what we've got to remember is that there's cyclical factors and structural factors that affect the the job market. What we're seeing at the moment is the the tail end of the the baby boomers moving their way into to retirement and it's a big cohort of people the the baby boomers and it's not being replicated by you know, the other demographic groups coming through the the gen y's gen x's the millennials yes and the like and so we have this situation of large loss of uh, people for, from the workforce And it's not being replaced by the same sort of number. So that's why we've got an unemployment rate that's at three point something at the moment. This is very much like back in the 1970s, back when, yes, the baby boomers were actually working their way through the system. And, of course, if we look at over the 80s and 90s and noughties, the unemployment rate on average was a lot higher, six, seven odd percent, eight percent was a more normal figure. So now we're gonna get used to a job figure or unemployment figure around about three and a half percent. So the the unemployment rate will rise a bit over time with a slowing economy, but uh, it will be constrained by structural factors. Uh, but you're not
1: anticipating a spike in unemployment. I mean, if it goes up to 4.5%, that's, that's certainly a
3: rise, but it's not a spike to the 6 and 8% that we're talking about in the early years. Well, if you think about recessions in the past, we've seen unemployment rates go from 5 to 11% in the space of months. So we're not predicting anything like that. And uh, there's, there's no signs that uh, consumers have totally given up on, on spending. They're in such a bad situation uh, where they uh, have to stop sp- spending. And uh, we see a dramatic impact in terms of the economy. So that's not happening at the moment. And we don't expect that to, to happen. But uh, the, the Reserve Bank is resolute. It wants to see the um, inflation rate back between two and 3%. And they've got some work to do rather than talking about inflation rates of around about 7%. You know, so they want to be talking about Inflation rates are 2 to 3%. So it's still a, a fair bit of work to, to be done. And that's why the Reserve Bank governor said, well, we'll pause for now in terms of interest rates, but we're going to watch things very, very carefully, particularly consumer spending, prices and wages, and and also the, the global economy as, as well uh, for influences on our set of uh, interest rates. Of course, uh, what we did do in the latest meeting yesterday is, is pause in terms of rate settings. Then you look over at New Zealand, and they increased their their cash rate by 50 50 points so we're seeing some different sorts of reaction functions from some of the countries around around the world some of the central banks around the world and
1: certainly certainly with the fed in the us and uh, that's happening as well uh, but i mean what are the chances of inflation getting down to 2 to 3% i mean cuz We we don't know where
3: where it's heading at the moment. Well, we we will um, get further guidance over the next couple of months. We'll have a monthly reading of uh, inflation and we'll have the the regular quarterly reading of inflation. And the next quarterly reading of inflation is uh, April 26th. So a few uh, weeks away yesterday yet, but that'll be the next major signpost ahead of uh, the uh, Reserve Bank board meeting in in May. But, uh, you know, the expectation is that... um, what you do is slow down demand for, for goods, slow down spending. That should match uh, the supplies. So supply and demand for goods should come into balance. And as a result, some of the inflationary pressures you know, sort of will ease. We do know in terms of the supply chain difficulties around the world that they're getting resolved. And we've got freight costs down significantly. We've got uh, petrol prices. Down. Up until recently, you know, it had been falling quite, quite sharply. And uh, that has been yes, you know, sort of quite encouraging in terms of the the outlook for for inflation, but we we believe at the Commonwealth Bank Group, uh, we believe that there is scope for late this year, early next year, uh, for the un- uh, for the inflation rate to get to between two and three percent. So it's not out of the out of the prospect of those uh, getting down to those sorts of uh, levels. If you have a slower economy, if you have uh, supply chain uh, difficulties easing if you've got inventories which are, are piling up you know so across retailers here in australia and across across the globe and uh that puts downward you know, so pressure on on prices so uh inflation still very much the name main game uh in the next uh, wednesday uh, the 12th of april we've got the consumer price index out of the united states and While it's not the preferred measure for the Federal Reserve, it's still the consumer price index. It's uh, still a key measure of inflation. And uh, the expectation is that the core rate, which excludes uh, the more volatile food and energy prices, the core rate would would rise by four tenths of one percent. And that may mean that the annual rate of inflation eases from five and a half percent to five percent. So if we did see that outcome uh, on Wednesday, certainly that would be very encouraging for not just the policymakers in the U.S., but you know, sort of right the way across the globe, it shows that it can be done, that inflation can you know, come down you know, so quite quickly, uh, provided that you're disciplined in terms of lifting interest rates and slowing down, down uh, activity. So we've got that consumer price index coming out on, on, on Wednesday.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
3: We've got minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting also happening on you know, Wednesday. Uh, we've got a producer price index, measure of business inflation out of the United States. And then on Friday, we've got retail sales, production and consumer sentiment. So some of the activity readings are a fair bit to watch in terms of the United States. For ourselves in Australia, as I mentioned, the labour force figures on Thursday. But over the week, what we have is consumer confidence. We have business confidence. So we have the NAB business survey coming out on, on Tuesday. Uh, and we know that uh, business conditions remain in very, very good shape for businesses. Their confidence levels are a little bit on the wane. And of course, the other thing to watch out for in the coming week is a speech by the Reserve Bank Deputy Governor, Michelle Bullock, on a panel in, in Melbourne. And uh, that's going to be uh, sort of fascinating to just see what her take is on, on proceedings and uh, see whether she can provide us with you know, so any more gems on interest rate settings so we can re- scoop those up and apply those, you know, sort of to our forecast for for interest rates.
1: Well, that's interesting because the last statement of the Governor Lowe was actually quite hawkish on the prospect of more interest rate rises, although they're putting it on pause for now.
3: Well, I think there's a strategy involved in, for the Reserve Bank. They want to keep everyone guessing. You don't want to be able to say, look, we're, we're paused on interest rates and we're going to stay here for, for some time then people just adjust to the new level of interest rates and can adjust to that quite quickly and may not slow their spending. But if there's a degree of uncertainty about just where interest rates are going and just how aggressive the Reserve Bank is going to be, you would expect that consumers would be a little bit more cautious about their spending habits going forward. That uncertainty is very, very important. So there is a strategy involved for for the Reserve Bank. They're keeping everyone guessing. They're not going to tell you yes. You know, so yes, we're going to pause, and that's where we're going to stay for forever. They're going to say, well, our main game is to get inflation down between two and three percent. We know we haven't done that as yet, and there's a lot of work to do. Yes, you know, sort of. So uh, I think that's the main message that we're going to hear coming out from uh, central banks. Um, they're going to continue to remain resolute in getting that inflation rate yes you know, so down to down to where they they want it. Well,
1: that'll be fascinating to watch. And Craig, thank you so much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, OPEC announced a surprise oil production cut of more than one million barrels a day, abandoning previous assurances that it would hold supply steady and posing a new risk for the global economy at a time of added fragility after massive interest rate hikes. It's a significant reduction for a market where, despite the recent price fluctuations, supply was looking tight for the latter part of a year. If the attempt to lift prices were successful and sustained, it would be a blow to those economies still battling to bring still unsustainable inflation rates under control. Indeed, if prices were to continue to rise and remain elevated, it would threaten a global economy already flirting with the recession by forcing central banks to maintain interest rates higher for longer to bring their inflation rates down to sustainable levels. After Saudi Arabia's announcement of a unilateral cut of 500,000 barrels a day from May until the end of 2023, Russia said it would extend a voluntary cut of 500,000 barrels a day until year's end. The United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Iraq, Oman and Algeria said they would also cut output over the same time period by a total of 581,000 barrels a day. With the additional cuts pledged by Russia and some other countries, the new round of oil production cuts on a voluntary basis could exceed 1.65 million barrels a day on top of production cuts of 2 million barrels a day announced in October. Oil's futures surged as much as 8% New York on Monday, while gasoline also gained, adding to the inflationary pressures that may force central banks around the world to keep interest rates higher for longer. Saudi Arabia led the cartel by pledging its own 500,000 barrel a day supply reduction. Fellow members including Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates and Algeria followed suit, while Russia said the production cut it was implementing from March to June will continue until the end of 2023. The international Brent benchmark traded near $84 a barrel in Singapore, while US gasoline jumped as much as 4.5%. Any increase in the cost of transportation fuels tends to be closely monitored by American politicians, particularly ahead of the summer season, when more people take road trips and vacations. Top oil issued calls for $100 crude after the decision, with some expecting worldwide supply demand balances to be in deficit earlier than expected. That view was reflected in the strengthening of Brent's backwardation, with a premium of prompt shipments rises relative to later supplies and a closely watched signal of tightness. The surprise move could once again flare tensions between the US and Saudi Arabia, a regional partner whose relationship with President Joe Biden's administration has been tense. The White House said that the new cuts were ill-advised, The move on Sunday, announced a day before the OPEC Monetary Committee is due to meet, was an unprecedented way to decide policy for the group, which has had to adapt in recent years, first to the demand shock of the pandemic, and now to the war in Ukraine and the fallout of sanctions. And data acquired by Finbol indicates that in the first quarter of 2023, the global tech industry recorded 160,004 layoffs, generally accounted for the highest share of the total layoffs, representing 53%, or 89,514 workers laid-off workers for the first three months of 2023 have surpassed the 164,411 employees that were let go during the entire 2022. A breakdown of the companies indicates that the top five tech companies have cumulatively laid off 57,000 employees in the first quarter of 2023. E-commerce giant Amazon leads at 17,000, followed by Google's parent company Alphabet at 12,000. Meta and Microsoft have each let go of 10,000 workers, while Salesforce ranks fifth at 8,000. And the Reserve Bank has given mortgage borrowers a reprieve, at least temporarily, by leaving interest rates on hold at its board meeting. After 10 consecutive rate rises, the RBA opted to wait and see how the economic data plays out amid early signs that the increase in rates so far is starting to weigh on consumer spending and lower inflation. The RBA has held interest rates steady after 10 consecutive rate rises. The cash rate target remains at 3.6%. RBA Governor Philip Lowe said further rate rises may well be needed to tame inflation, while the hiking cycle may appear over. A shift in financial sentiment or an unexpected surge in consumer prices could leave the RBA with little choice but to hike rates further. The RBA's decision reflects the data and information available to them at the time, and that can easily change particularly in an uncertain economic or financial environment. And Medicare is hemorrhaging up to $3 billion a year in waste, according to a government-commissioned review of the health system's integrity, which warns it risks losing billions more to rorts in an overly complex and opaque bu- bureaucracy that needs urgent reform. An independent report into non-compliance and fraud in the $38 billion universal health care system by health economist Dr Pradeep Philip has found Medicare is so poorly structured and loosely scrutinised that it is no longer fit for purpose and has left the gate wide open for fraud. The former head of the Victorian Health Department says the 6,000 items on the Medicare benefit schedule are difficult to navigate. Only a small portion of 500 million transactions each year are scrutinised and the growing corporate ownership of medical clinics has weakened the relationship between doctors and patients while limiting oversight of billing. Philip flags several areas requiring urgent attention, including a continuous monitoring system that would send SMS alerts when claims are made and simplifying the Medicare billing system with items that better cater for complex conditions clearer language and more details of the service, such as length and location. Other recommend include the establishment of a new Medicare Oversight Committee made up of department representatives and independent experts, while the powerful Australian Medical Association would lose its veto power over who runs the system's regulator. And the value of Australia's coal and gas exports could be halved in just five years, as new forecasts warm booming commodity prices have likely passed their peaks, and key trading partners across Asia are increasing efforts to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Federal government trade data released on Monday reveals earnings from Australia's minerals and energy exports are set to breach unseen highs of $464 billion in 2022-23 after Russia's invasion of Ukraine worsened a global energy crisis and boosted fuel prices for a second straight year. Record income from sales of Australian thermal coal, the type of coal burned in power stations, and metallurgical coal used in steel-making furnaces are expected to be $128 billion for the financial year overtaking iron ore as the country's most lucrative export. Australia's exports of liquefied natural gas, meanwhile, are forecast to hit $91 billion in 2022-23, three times higher than 2021, on the back of record high prices as Northern Hemisphere nations scrambled to secure alternative supplies to Russian gas. However, the figures from the Department of Industry, Science and Resources warn that the spectacular surge in energy commodity prices from 2022 has now largely unwound. As the world economy slows and supply chain disruptions due to COVID-19 and weather show signs of easing. The value of Australia's overall coal exports is predicted to fall by $79 billion from $128 billion to $49 billion by 2028. LNG is expected to retreat by $44 billion from $91 billion to $47 billion. This means Australia's total fossil fuel export earnings could fall by more than $123 billion. An ASX-listed automotive classifieds business, Car Sales, has bought a local advertising technology company as it continues its push to nab a bigger slice of the advertising market from traditional media outlets. Documents filed to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission show the $8.8 billion Classifiers business has brought public, an Australian company founded by two former Google advertising executives, which helps online publishers generate ad dollars more effectively by using automated advertising technology. And local startup investment. Created in the first quarter of 2023, according to the report from Cutthrough Venture, which was published on Tuesday, showing a dire financial picture for the nation's tech startups. There was $661 million in funding reported across 82 deals, a dramatic drop compared with $3.3 billion for the same period a year earlier. The results of the survey of about 140 investors included startup accelerator programs, angel syndicates, Family offices and venture capital funds suggests that valuations in later stage private startups have fallen by up to 50%, which in some cases would mean billions of dollars wiped from market capitalizations. More layoffs are likely, as more than half of those surveys reported that some of their portfolio companies have either already laid off staff during the quarter or were planning to. Australian startups have collectively laid off thousands of staff in the past 12 months, with Mr. Yum, Zumo, Immutable. Milk run and till payments, each cutting their workforce by double digit percentage. Statistics show more workers in tech were laid off in the past year than in 2020 and 21 combined, despite relatively low unemployment rates, and unprofitable startups were forced to cut costs after hiring too quickly during the pandemic. The vast majority of investors. 119 out of 140, said they expected start-up valuations would fall during the remainder of the year. And Australia's premier big shipbuilder and defence contractor, Ostel could find itself frozen out of future lucrative US Navy contracts, just at a time when Western nations are rebuilding their fleets after the powerful SEC charge three former Ostel US executives for allegedly making false and misleading financial statements. The allegations of fraud against the Austell executives come as Australia, the US and Britain undertake their historic AUKUS submarine partnership, making it a sensitive, diplomatic and operational time for the US securities regulator to launch its court action against the Australian shipbuilder. The SEC has alleged the former US-based executives of Austell, which is 19% owned by Australian multi-billionaire Andrew Forrest, orchestrated a fraudulent revenue recognition scheme that allowed its parent company to meet or exceed analyst expectations. The SEC alleges that From at least January 2013 through to July 2016, Ostel's US former president, Craig DePercivali, its current director of financial analysis, Joseph A. Runkle, and former director of the Littoral Combat Ships Program, William O. Adams, engaged in a scheme to artificially reduce the cost estimates to complete certain shipbuilding projects for the US Navy by tens of millions of dollars. Mr. Runkle's employment was terminated following the SEC move, and all three executives are no longer at the company. The complaint alleges that the executives knew that hostile US shipbuilding costs were rising and higher than planned, but they directed others to arbitrarily lower their cost estimates to meet Ostel US revenue budget and revenue projections. And as the government prepares for a battle over its proposed superannuation tax changes on balances above $3 million, the Grattan Institute think tank has argued super reform should go much further. The Grattan Institute says all superannuation income should be taxed, including in retirement. The report argues a 30% tax rate on super earnings should apply to balances above $2 million. In a pre-budget report outlining potential policy changes to the superannuation system, Grattan Institute researchers Brendan Coates and Joey Maloney argued forcefully that super required radical reform. The report notes that super tax breaks currently cost $45 billion a year in foregone revenue and will soon exceed the cost of the aged pension. Grattan's first proposal is to lower the threshold and increase the tax rate on super contributions from high-income earners. This would see anyone earning above $220,000 a year pay a 35% tax rate on income flowing into their super account as opposed to the current rule that imposes a 30% tax rate on those earning above 250000 The report estimated the new threshold would affect about 213,000 taxpayers while the higher rate would affect about 707,000 taxpayers, all of whom would be within the top 10% of income earners, saving the budget about $1.1 billion a year. At the same time, Grattan proposed expanding the low-income superannuation tax offset from a maximum of $500 to $800, while making it accessible to people earning up to $45,000 a year, currently cuts out at $37,000. This change, it said, would benefit around 1.1 million low-to-middle-income earners at a cost to the budget of around $530 million. Perhaps the most controversial recommendation was to abolish the tax-free status of superannuation earnings in retirement. This would affect around 2 million retirees, but Cratton said around 70% of the budget savings would come from 20% of the highest income retirees. And ANZ will need to convince the regulator that swallowing Suncor would be better for competition than a merger between the Queensland Group and a second-tier bank such as Bendigo and Adelaide Bank or Bank of Queensland. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission said it was unconvinced by ANZ and Suncor's arguments about the merger benefits. Deputy Commissioner Mick Keogh said beyond technology, the big banks were not differentiated. And British billionaire Sanjeev Gupta's GFG Alliance will spend up to $500 million on a new electric arc furnace at the Wyala Steelworks in South Australia as it phases out coal-based steelmaking in use since the mid-1960s. Mr Gupta said on Tuesday that Liberty Steel, GFG's steel unit, had ordered an electric arc furnace from the manufacturer Danielli and that it aims to have it running at Wyala by late 2025, a big step forward in the company's green steel ambitions. He also revealed longest range plans to establish a direct reduction iron plant to process magnetite ore... GFG's nearby mine in the Middleback Ranges. The overall investment is likely to top $1 billion across both projects. Electric arc furnaces make steel from melted scrap metal instead of iron ore. The Wyala Steelworks has used cook coking coal ovens and a blast furnace since its inception in 1965. When it was owned by BHP. Mr. Gupta said the 160 ton electric arc furnace would lift steelmaking capacity at the Wyala plant from 1 million tonnes annually to about 1.5 million tonnes. He said the modernisation would let the company cut direct carbon emissions from steelmaking at Wyala by about 90%. Liberty Steel is one of the 215 highest carbon emitters under the federal government's Safeguard Mechanism scheme. And government financial assistance to encourage mothers and the jobless to work more may need to be funded by reducing tax breaks for investors. This includes higher taxes on passive income, such as trust funds, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy has signalled. It would pay for incentives to bring tens of thousands of women and those on welfare into a jobs market screaming out for more workers. In comments previewing the Albanese government's employment white paper due in September, Dr Kennedy said the tax transfer system was discouraging. Secondary earners and people on government benefits from working more. A secondary earner, who were mainly women, working more than one day a week on a full-time equivalent salary of $60,000, loses 60% to 80% of their income due to higher income tax, the withdrawal of family payments and childcare costs. Kennedy said about 70% of Australian women held down a job, a proportion similar to women in the United States, Canada, New Zealand and the UK. But Australian women were much less likely to work full-time with Kennedy arguing they face substantial financial disincentives to pick up additional days. A single person on a job with no children and on an annual income of less than $33,000 faces an effective marginal tax rate of more than 60% on each dollar earned. Meanwhile, Australian women with children are less likely to be in full-time employment than in places like New Zealand, the United States, Canada and the United Kingdom. And social media app TikTok, will reportedly be banned from the Australian government-issued devices over security concerns. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has issued the directive following a review by the Home Affairs Department into the risks posed by the Chinese-owned app. According to media reports on Monday evening, the ban would apply to mobile phones and other devices issued by the government for politicians and public servants. According to the reports on Monday, state and territory governments received a briefing on Monday about the federal ban and are expected to follow through with similar rules for their officials. The move follows the United States, Canada, New Zealand and the European Union prohibiting government employees from having TikTok on work-issued devices. Concerns over TikTok relate to the potential for data to be harvested and accessed by the Chinese government under national laws that can compel companies to hand over information. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Sharon Morris, General Manager, Australia, New Zealand at Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply talking about the importance of social procurement and I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about the future board of the RBA. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, LeonGetler.com. If you want to contact, email me at at LeonGetler.com. I answer all emails, wishing you all a safe and healthy week. I'm looking forward to bringing you talking business next week.
2: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues